You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Redemption. So as we've um, started the new year, which suddenly feels like ages ago, um, I guess this is the, is this the fourth Sunday of the new year? Fifth? Yeah, I guess fourth because there's, anyway, um, what we've been doing the whole time is uh, a lesson in theological anthropology, right? Which is like a terrible way of introducing what we're doing. What we're doing is we're trying to understand who we are like who I am as an individual, who we are as humans, um, and recognizing the fact that we can only do that uh, adequately in a trustworthy way, in a true way, in a, in a helpful way. We can, we can only understand who we are in light of understanding who God is. And so what we've done for the past three weeks is um, hopefully a little boring. Like it's, it's, it's great, and I, and I hope it um, stirs us and helps us, but we've kind of like dragged our feet before getting to um, perhaps what are uh, the more poignant questions about who am I? Because the poignant questions are, am I good? We're just saying to Jesus that he's worthy, but like what am I worthy of? Like not, not that I need to be worshipped, but like am I a bad person? Am I the sum of my actions? Am I the average of my actions? Am I the median or mode of my actions? Am I like the, the best things I've ever done? Am I the worst things I've ever done? Like, like wh- wh- how, how does God think of me? What, what does he think of me? And so for the past like three weeks, what we've done is we've taken simple and I hope like gentle note of we're in God and we're for God. And in week two, we talked about, hey, we're not just physical beings in a physical reality with actual circumstances. As much as all of those things matter, We also are beings with souls that have a deep need and usually desire, whether we try to squelch it or not, but desire and need to be in the presence of God, to know God, and to be known by God. So what we did last week was we reassured ourselves that we are known by God intimately and affectionately and consistently, that he knows us better than than we know ourselves. He knows our weakness and our frame. He knows our design and our uniqueness. He's got affection for us and all that. So all we've done in these three weeks is just kind of like build a foundation for here's who we are as 
humans. And what we're gonna turn to today is actually uh, perhaps maybe what most of us think of first um, if we spend a whole lot of time in and around the church. Um, because we're gonna, we're gonna talk about sin, and we're gonna talk about like, what's the flesh, like what's our brokenness, what's our twistedness, like what's our guilt, what's our shame, like we're gonna talk about like actual sin, but, but as we start there, um, if this is your first week with us, just I need you to hear, hey, this isn't the first week of the series, and this cannot be how we start. Um, but even if you've been here for all four weeks of this now, I just wanna re- remind you, this cannot be how we start, and it is not how we started and in fact, if you think about like how the scriptures themselves start, if you think about like the very beginning of Genesis, what happens in Genesis 1 is, hey, God's the creator. We're, we're in him and for him. And then we see like God giving his breath, breathing into the, to the nostrils of the humans of, oh, we have souls, which is weeks one and two of this series. And then week three is, hey, there's affection. We see that in the garden, Adam and Eve like walk um, naked and unashamed in the presence of God and they are known and they know and like there's something really wonderfully, awesomely good about design of human nature. And this is actually how the scriptures start. The scriptures do not start with Genesis 3. They do not start with sin. And though all, all of our lives and all of the mess around us we're going to talk a lot about today and we're going to, going to like feel like a little bit um, all-encompassed by it, and yet it's not where the scriptures start and it's not where we have started. So, so as you leave here today and you're like, ah, we're, we're really sinful. Um, hang on, hang on. Yes, but also there's so much more than that. And any of the things that we say today does not undercut the things that we've talked about, the fact that we are still, nevertheless, in God. Even though sometimes we, we use language like, well, I, sin can't even, be, can't even exist in the presence of God. We actually get that from scriptural language, um, and yet that is hyperbolic, right? Like there, there's gotta be some sort of in the presence of God, or like we would all just dissipate and have non-existence. Okay, so, so how do I as, right, so, so we, we cannot undercut and undermine and throw out all the things that we've done for these three weeks. With all that said, let's turn and ask, are we good? Colossians chapter three, verse five. Okay, so I'm jumping into the middle of the letter, um, which is hard, but I'm, I'm picking this part of this letter because what we're gonna do this week is we're gonna talk about sin. What we're gonna do next week is we're gonna talk about what it means for us to be intimately and permanently like braided together with Jesus, like joined with Jesus, to have union with Jesus. Um, and w- I talked about that a couple weeks ago from Romans 8, but we're gonna come back and talk about it uh, again from Colossians 3. But in, in the midst of that, there's actually a great discussion of like sinfulness and brokenness. And so we're just gonna jump in here in the middle of the letter. Uh, we're jumping after some really good stuff. We're jumping before some really good stuff. We'll hit some of that stuff next week. Um, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. So, um, even if you've been in the church a long time, sometimes we forget that the Bible isn't a book. The Bible is a library. The, the Bible is a collection of books. Um, and most of the books um, in the New Testament are letters. And they're letters that are sent to particular people with particular needs at a particular time. Like they're, they're actual, um, like real living documents of how the earliest Christians were thinking about Jesus, worshiping Jesus, and talking about Jesus to each other. Um, So Colossians is one of these early letters written in the first couple of decades after um, the death and resurrection of Jesus. There was this guy, Saul, um, whom we also know as Paul. Saul's his Roman name. Paul's his Jewish name. They're both interchangeable. Um, 
we usually call him Paul, uh, but he writes um, a, a number of letters to the churches, and this one is to a church in Colossae, and he's reminding them of God's vast love for them. And, and he couches this as, hey, God loves you even when you're his enemies, right? Th- this is the surrounding kind of context. So for all that we are about to get, get to, like the reasoning, the, the therefore comes from the fact that you are deeply and profoundly beloved by God and you guys have started to know some of this. So one of the hard things about the letters of Paul is they are ri- written entirely to Christians, they're not written to non-Christians to help them become Christians. Paul did that. Paul speaks in that. We, we see some evidence of that in, in the book of Acts. We have some like snippets of speeches that the early church gave to people who weren't of the church. But all of this that said is not aimed at, it's not um, ammunition for, it's not to tear down people around who don't believe in Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure whether you believe in Jesus or not, you're absolutely welcome here. But there's like, there's some modifications that need to be had for any of this to be quite true for you this morning. And all All of these things are being said to the Christians in the room, which means all of the hard things that are going to be said in this passage, uh, we we can't be thinking about, oh, well, that that awful person that I know, like, yeah, they need to get it together or or else, like, God's going to smack them down, which which is the way that we hear some of these hard passages sometimes, like, as we come to the text, each of us needs to do a little bit of, like, breathing in, stealing ourselves, and letting our guard down and saying, okay, God, speak to me. Here's what the Lord says through Paul to the church in Colossae, therefore to us. Verse five. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Um, I'm using the New American Standard Bible this morning, which is known as a super literal Bible. Um, There are lots of good translations, no perfect ones. The reason I tell you that is not to make you distrust the um, translations per se, um, but it's to be aware of the fact that you probably need to read uh, multiple translations, and if you end up in a place where somebody's trying to, like, um, control you with a translation, they're trying to control you with a translation. Um, Maybe that's my own issues. Uh, New American Standard, which I'm reading this morning, is known as a really faithful, conservative, literal translation, but we start out here with a not-at-all-literal translation of this word. It says, therefore, consider the members of your body as dead. What it actually says is, hey, kill the members of your earthly body. Put them to death. Mortify them. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Okay, so we're going to get two of these catalogs, as they're known. Two of these, like, lists. They are not all-encompassing, um, but we're going to get this, this negative list here. In just a couple verses, we're going to get another negative list. And as the New Testament thinks about sin, it just kind of throws out lots of stuff. There's no, like, here is the complete indexed catalog with reference aids for you that that tells you this is every sin that there is, um, because that's not the way that the New Testament thinks about sin, even though it's the way that most of us think about sin. The problem with that is then most of us think, oh, there is this catalog, I just don't know what it is, and so eventually God's going to reveal the catalog, and then I'm going to get shot in the face over not having known the catalog. Because I, I think lots of times when we think about sin, 
the thing that's kind of been beaten into our head in a, in a bunch of churches, um, and maybe, maybe I'm overgeneralizing and over-exaggerating, but, but I know this is the case, at least in my own psyche, and, and I imagine that it is for many of y'all, that really what you think God is at the core of his being is he is an obsessor, and he is obsessive about tiny little things, and if you get any of the tiny little things, Regardless of the fact that you don't know what those tiny little things are, so you better be very afraid of the fact that you don't even know what the tiny little things are, but there are tiny little things, and if you get any of the tiny little things wrong, he's going to zap you with a lightning bolt. And that's, by and large, how many of us come to internalize this concept of sin and God's position of sin, but it's not the way the New Testament treats sin. Nevertheless, the New Testament isn't, like, completely indifferent to sin. So what it does is it gives us these catalogs of, hey, like, things like this. And I like these catalogs because they're not all-encompassing, but they are a little weird, right? There's immorality. Okay, that seems bad, especially it's probably like a kind of sexual immorality, and and maybe we can quibble over exactly what kind of sexual immorality, but but there's at least some sort of like faithlessness that our bedroom habits are not according to love and they're not according to shalom. Like somehow we are destroying shalom with this thing that's supposed to be intimate and beautiful and healthy and holy. So, so there, there's this, and then we're like, oh, yeah, that, that, that checks out. We get it. Impurity, yeah, that kind of seems like it. Passion, I don't know. Wouldn't Jesus passionate? Am I not passionate sometimes when I, when I speak? Well, maybe there's, there's bad kind of passion, and we start to understand. And then there's evil desire, which it does actually say evil desire. Sometimes it just says desire. Paul here specifies evil desire, which is usually what he means when he says desire. He means evil desire. We're like, okay, the, these seem bad, but like, they're all kind of like internalized. They're like, they're, they're not actions, they're dispositions, they're postures, they're like, wait, desire? And then this last one, which I love the most, greed, which amounts to idolatry. I hate, to the, to the, to the extent that you think you constantly need more stuff. I need more, I hunger for more, I want more. I want more material goods, I want more material ease, I want more um, time from people, I want more pleasure, I want more indulgence, I want more like whatever your bag is, I want more. He says, oh, by the way, that's idolatry. And, and I love the weirdness of this list. Because I, th- I think if somebody came up to me and they're like, hey, what are the worst sins I could commit? If, if, if I had to start a sentence, if, if I like, had an essay prompt, Hey, start this sentence as put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, things such as dot, 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 dot. Like, how many of the items on this list am I putting down? Uh, I don't know, one? Like, basically none of them. And, and I love that the, the New Testament here, Paul here is like, no, 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 like greed is like, this is huge. This is on my list. And I'm like, greed seems like, I don't want to be greedy. I'm not Gordon Gecko arguing that greed is good, but come on, like, I got I to gotta kill it? I got to put it to death? Like, this is, this is really, like, come on. And so I love the catalogs because they just, they challenge my ideas of what's important and what's not, and they're just weird enough to make me really listen. Now, we can, we can take these lists and we can um, soliloquize over them, which I guess I'm doing to some extent. But I think we can draw lots of conclusions, and I think people do lo- draw lots of conclusions, and a bunch of theologians spill a bunch of ink over these lists and what's included and what's not and how they are all related to each other. And that's fine, but 
can I tell you, at the end of the day, most of that feels like we're just injecting ourselves back into the text, and maybe that's not exactly what Paul anticipated when he wrote this letter. So then what are we doing in, in this letter? What are we doing with this text? Well, let's read on and we'll figure it out together. So, kill the earthly members of your body, i.e. these things, verse six. For it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience is very like Old Testament kind of language, um, good biblical like Hebrew scripture language. Um, And Paul is saying, hey, these things really matter. Like your greed, because of this, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Right, that, that's how significant those things that seem like a little evil desire, a little like passion, like really? God's wrath coming on the sons of disobedience. Wait, does God have wrath? I thought we were like a kind of church that didn't believe in any kind of wrath. No, no, we can't, we can't be that kind of church. New Testament stipulates that God has wrath. The question is, what, is, what does wrath mean? What, what kind of wrath are we talking about? Is, is God's core disposition towards us hatred? Is he um, some sort of sociopath that takes pleasure in destroying us? No, 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 that, that cannot be what we mean by wrath. If Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, which is what the New Testament says in a ton of different ways, it says, hey, you wanna understand at heart who God is. You wanna like exegete him. You wanna understand like the heart of the matter of who God is, look at Jesus. And we look at Jesus, everybody knows that Jesus is about love. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. And we're like, wait, so God loves his enemies? Actually, Jesus says, if you want to be like your heavenly father, if you want to be perfect like him, if you want to be holy like him, then love your enemies. And so, and so we have to interpret whatever God's wrath is in terms of the fact that God loves his enemies. But it also, we can't just end up with, well, God has no wrath. Okay, so then what are, what are we doing here? Like, are, are we just kind of at an impasse at a, at a catch-23? No, no, no. There, there, there is wrath. And, and it's part of what we talked about last week. God cannot be indifferent to all the wrongness of the world. Right? If God is indifferent to the wrongness of the world, then he is indifferent to you and me. And if indifference to you and me cannot be love for you and me, and as, as we preach and proclaim and believe and stake our lives on the fact that God cares, he cares about our inner beings, he cares about our joy, he cares about our peace, he cares about our flourishing, then God has to care about justice, about rightness, about righteousness, yes, when adequately and appropriately understood. God has to oppose these things that are destroying Shalom. He has to oppose the things that are not working for our flourishing. He has to oppose these things and stand against them and in a, in a very strong and real and biblical sense have wrath against them, which means that he has wrath against the people who perpetrate them because he's going to stop them. He's going to end it. He's going to cease it. And it very well might be encountered and understood and interpreted and experienced by the recipients of it as wrath. And all of that is adequate and right and true. But let me note two things here in verse six that give us perhaps a little bit of space that maybe you need and sometimes I need. One is, um, it doesn't say will come. 
so, so the translation, not to pick on the NASB, I like the NASB or I wouldn't be preaching from it this week. This is these things, because of these things, the wrath of God will come. It, that's not what the Greek says. Um, the, the Greek says, these thi- because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now, there's a little bit of space because is coming is the kind of thing that can mean in the future it's coming. And we say that in English and it's the same sort of thing in Greek. You can say a thing in a present tense and it really kind of means that it's, that it's future. But it can also mean, no, 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 this is presently coming and being experienced, which is a very Pauline concept. Like Pauline, like the author Paul, that is in his thought world. This is exactly what Romans 1 is talking about. In fact, now that I think about it, Romans 1, as it's talking about um, the, the, this present concept of wrath, is one of our best definitions of what the wrath of God is. That, that as we look around at our pain, at our suffering, at these things that we've been kind of handed over to, delivered over to, that we are currently experiencing, the wrath of God is coming, is continuing to come, is being experienced. Yes, will continue to be experienced, but it is here because of these things. So the wrath of God isn't just a concept of, hey, eventually God is going to have it up to here and he's going to give you the whooping you've always been begging for. No, no, no. The, the wrath of God is something that we are currently living in the midst of. Now, I'm not saying that it's only currently, but I am saying that it is absolutely currently and there's no biblical way around that. I, I, that's, that's a little bit of like, I, th- that's, a, that's a hard statement for me to say because anytime I say something is biblical, it's just like a sledgehammer that we use um, against and over other people. And yet, like, it's, it's really hard to read the New Testament and not see that the wrath of God is here in a very real and profound sense. Okay, so, so th- this is one place where we get a little bit of space where, wait, so what we're already experiencing is, um, in large measure, the wrath of God. Point number two is... This because of. Um, there are some translators who translate this preposition here. It's, it's through these things that the wrath of God is coming. Right? So all of these things, this evil desire, this passion, this lust, this immorality, this um, uh, evil desire, this greed which amounts to idolatry, Like, the wrath of God is already present because you're experiencing these things. It's coming through these things. Yes, on account of these things. Yes, because of these things. But not just as as if they were divorced from reality. One of my um, major convictions in life, if you want to understand what Zach McCoy thinks about the Bible, what Zach McCoy thinks about Jesus, what Zach McCoy thinks about the gospel, um, one of the most helpful things that I can tell you about my own theology is I think the concept of sin and the concept of death are way too divorced in most of our theology. In most of our theology, what we think is the bad things that we do that God is mad about, eventually God is going to smack us down over. We, we divorce them as if they are extrinsic to each other. Sin happens, and then sin does what it does, and then eventually God comes back and zaps us with a lightning bolt. The problem is that's not the biblical story. The biblical story tie these two things together in an intrinsic way where something about the nature of sin is actually and actively causing death, is actually and actively causing the destruction of shalom around us. 
destruction of shalom is one of my favorite good theological definitions for what sin is because sin is not an arbitrary thing that God has decided he doesn't like. Sin is a destroying of the good things that God does care about. And as, as we kind of let that seep into our bones, it gives us a measure of freedom. And, and it stops us from, from viewing God as this obsessive, completely not understandable person who's going to just zap us. We start to understand, oh, God does care. He does have wrath. He does need to set things right. And also, the, 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 the implications of our sin, although there might still be further future implications of that sin, we are already living with the implications of sin in devastating ways, whether we've quite realized that or put it in those terms before or not. Verse 7. In all of these, you also once walked when you were living in them. Right? So he's not going to like blow up his whole theology here. He's not going to ex- expand in one verse here everything that he said. But, but there's strong implication here that whatever he said to every Christian in the room of, hey, like you need to stop these things that are part of sin, that are part of the unmaking of shalom around you. God really cares. And then he reminds you, hey, you remember that all of you guys used to live in these things. And then we say, wait, so we all used to live in these things and, and then what? And then we got our act together and God decided to love us? No, no, no. That's not at all the story. And that's not the story that Paul has told in, in, in Colossians here. The story is that God loved his enemies. Even while we were actively his enemies, even while we were actively participating in the destruction of Shalom, even as we were actively opponents of the God of love and all of his love, even as we stood face to face against him, even as we walked in this, lived in this, breathed it, even if, as it was our heartbeat, it coursed through our veins, even in that, God loved us. So then God loved us and started to rescue us from it, which is where we're going to get to next week, is how does, how does some of this rescue start to work? How do we actually get freed from some of this reality that all of us swim in? But, but the, the stipulation is that all of us did swim in it, And so many of us are still continuing to swim in it, even though God is actively and repeatedly and insistently trying to free us from it. And the the implication here in verse 7 is, hey, by the way, that used to be true, but it's not true anymore in the way that it used to be, even though some of you are still acting like it is true in the way that it always used to be. But but there's peace and joy and grace and freedom here in verse 7, even as it's not entirely and fully spelled out. Verse 8, but now you also put them all aside. And he's going to give a second um, catalog. And it's, it's not that the first catalog was suddenly wrong or suddenly thrown out. It's not that one like stands in, hey, these are the really bad ones and these are the less bad ones. Or these are the ones that like God's really got wrath for and these are the ones that would be nice if you could. No, no, no. It's, it's not anything like that. This is what I talked about before. Paul's understanding is that God really loves you. You are destroying shalom in, hey, there's, there's so many ways that I can look around and see how you are not living lives of love. You are not building the shalom of the God of, lo- of love around you. And he, and he lists out, hey, I, I, can, I can list out a ton of ways that we're doing this. 
and that they're really important. And then he's going to list an entirely different ton of ways that we are doing this. So, so put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. So we had lots of postures. We had a little bit of like sexual immorality stuff and a little bit of action, but most of the previous list was like posture and attitude and disposition. And this one is all of our words. If, if you had to list, hey, what are the worst things you've ever done? If you had to list, hey, what are the ways that I'm opposing shalom? What are the ways that like, I stand in, in opposition to the God of love in the universe? Like, how many of those ways are attitude and disposition? And how many of them are, man, I've said some awful things to people over the years. See, I, I think we don't take our sin nearly seriously enough. I think these things that feel so minor to us, over and over and over, the New Testament says, these are the issue. These are at the heart of the issue. These are destroying the cosmos around you. Don't you see? Right, the the end of the first list was, hey, do you realize that your greed is idolatry? And we're like, idolatry doesn't seem that bad. So therefore, greed doesn't seem that bad. And yet the point of that is clearly, no, greed is so terrible because idolatry is so terrible. And all of us are like, yeah, but idolatry, like I know it's terrible, but I, I don't feel that bad about it. It doesn't feel like it's that significant. It's not something that I like worried about this week when I was like talking to my friend and they're asking, you know, how are you? How's your soul? Like, how's your prayer life? How's your spiritual life? I'm like, man, I'm just wrapped up in idolatry. Like, n- n- um, I, I don't know when the last time I said that was, when the last time I cared about that in an appropriate way was. Not that I try to do it, but like these lists, I think are jarring in just the right way. So you're supposed to put these all aside, right? So we've got two kind of commands so far. One, hey, kill these things. Two is put them aside. Um, Three in verse nine, he's gonna give us two more. Don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. All right, so we've got kill these things, put them away. We've got don't lie to one another, and we've got strip. Like, this, this is clothing language, this laid aside the old self. It's strip yourself, like take off those clothes. So his language here is of self. I'm, I'm going to get back to, at the very end, we're going to come back and we're going to close with this, don't lie to one another. I, I think the secret of Christian community is hidden right here in Colossians 3.9 in this do not lie to one another. I think the, like, the secret to joy and happiness and being known is right here. We will get back there, I promise, but give me a minute. He says, strip your old self off with its evil practices. Right? There, there's no mincing of words here. There's no, well, you're not that bad. It was just greed. It was just idolatry. No, no, it's your evil practices. Strip them off. Shed them like your soiled, like awful, dirty clothes. Put them in the trash. Burn them. Get rid of them. And he's telling us to do that to our old selves. Which suddenly is, wait, my, our, our old selves? Paul and the early Christians, the earliest, earliest followers of Jesus, understood sin not just as what we do, but somehow as being who we are, as 
having something to do with our very self, with our nature, with our makeup, with our wiring, with like ourself. Like in, in layman's terms, this, this whole series, these, these whole four weeks, we've been asking, who am I? Like, what is myself? And the New Testament says, hey, don't be deceived. Like, you've got a self, and it's kind of rotten. Now, we've, we've couched that in, hey, this self is in God and for God and beloved by God and created by God and, like, has a soul and needs to, like, needs to be connected to God, and yet there's something that's deeply and unchangeably wrong about this. And, it, and as we say this, uh, we're like, ah, oh, crap, this is really, really negative. Isn't this a little bit of an exaggeration? Like, my old self with its evil practices. Like, sometimes we go through a thing and, and we meet somebody and they're like, hey, you did this thing to me back in the day, and you're like, ah, oh, that was the old me. And we use this, like, as a, as a cheap excuse. I, I certainly don't want us to do that, but like, how many of us in here could ever say, wait, that was the old me with my evil practices? Like, we really own who I was somehow deep down was like, th- there was a mess there. I think there's some of us who immediately are like, that, that sounds like scary and I no, can't go there with you. But, but even those of us who are raised a little bit more in that, I don't, I don't know that we can honestly with a straight face, like really deep in our bones say, oh yeah, old me, evil practices, absolutely. Like maybe, maybe we say it, and may, I, I'm projecting a little bit, right? But, but I think sometimes when I say it, I, I don't know that I like mean it, mean it. I guess I want to mean it. Like I, I think it's theologically right, and I'm going to show you how I, how I think it's theologically right. But, but can, I, can I just get us all to the place of saying, ah, uh, this, this, is, this is a lot. Like if we're supposed to leave here this, this morning and say, my old self with its evil practices, we're supposed to feel that, know that, like I, 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 how do I get there? Um, I could take you and we could spend the next like 30 minutes um, arguing, you know, from Jeremiah, the, your heart is desperately sick and deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? We can talk about, like, you know, I can quote Old Testament, actually, I can quote Jesus saying that, hey, this comes from within, from the heart of man. I, I can quote, like, we, we, we can go and do, like, a biblical theology, but, but instead of doing that, um, let, let, me, let me just uh, make an argument that I think I would find persuasive. I, I do find persuasive or I wouldn't be giving it to you, Right? Um, so, so what is the old self? Like, are, are the problems in the world external to me? Is, is when, when God says he's going to save the world, he's going to fix the world, he's going to make right everything that's in the world, um, I think what Paul is saying here about the old self and his practices, I think where we start from is that that old self, the, the mess of the world, is not just external to the self, but somehow even the self is corrupted. Yes, there's, there's brokenness on grand scales. We, we see that. We see greed run rampant. And then Paul says, hey, but all of us lived among that at one time. Right? The, this is kind of the... the uh, confession that maybe we, we're trying to get to and maybe we start with, but then we ask, wait, how, how can we see that? Um, I think 
any internalized problems we have, in fact, stem from our alienation from God. Okay, so can we, can we start there? We, we can all acknowledge that the world's a mess. I don't think there's anybody living in America in 2022 um, that doesn't think that the world's a mess. But if we're asking, wait, the world's a mess and I'm a mess and somehow those aren't distinct things. It's not that I caused the whole world mess, but man, I'm just a part of it alongside it. I'm complicit in it. I'm, the world's a mess and I'm a mess. Okay, wait, how am I a mess? The, the first thing that we can start to see is, wait, all of us, have a profound sense of alienation from God. Maybe not at every moment, maybe not forever in our lives. And what we're doing here together is we're trying to heal that sense of alienation from God because the message of Jesus is that we do not have to stay in a state of alienation from God. And yet all of us look back and we're like, oh, there was an old me that was entirely alienated from God. That wasn't filled with his love that wasn't acquainted in a deep sense with his goodness and joy, that wasn't securely, regularly, and consistently relating to him, knowing him, being known by him. You see, when this happens, if we are in God and for God, if we are beings with souls, if we are meant to be known by God and know God, which was the like, whole thing these first three weeks, to the extent that, that we don't know these things and we need to know these things, the next logical implication is that we start to be at least a little afraid, at least a little selfish, at least a little filled with the things in the catalog here in Colossians 3. So we have some alienation from God, and it, and it at least starts to fuel a little bit of some of these things. But these internalized problems are actually compounded by the external mess around us, because we see others with extreme violence, extreme indifference, extreme fear, extreme greed, and seeing these things in others so often stokes me to the same The thing that started is just I'm a little alienated with God or from God, and so I have a little bit of these things in me, this little tiny spark, seeing that that spark is a raging fire all around me, starts to burn a little out of control. And not only is it seeing that mess in the lives and souls and hearts of other people, but it's realizing my place in the world. Wait, I'm a person who can starve. I'm a person who can have lack, who can be naked, who can get cancer, who's going to die. And then all of a sudden, my fear and my lack of control over these things, especially as I look at the people around me and I'm like, they have a little bit of violence, they have a little bit of greed, they have a little bit of like abusive talk, and all of a sudden, I in myself am stoked more and more and more to these things which is further compounded by the people around us who give us just tiny little reasons to believe even worse about the people who are far from us. Because if we know bad things about the people close to us, then how many bad things are being hidden by all the people around us? And the little bit of violence that we've experienced from the people who are supposed to be the most loving to us, the most shalom building with us and for us, who nevertheless misunderstand us and judge us, who fear us and hate us who take our own stuff or limit the amount of income that we can have so that they can live in this giant house. Like, like we start to distrust in all of these circles and it stirs within us a little bit of alienation from us or from God 
and a little bit of awareness of the mess, and then a little bit of awareness of the mess and the people around us, and then a little bit of up close and personal of, oh, I've started to internalize this. And most of us are starting to realize, oh, I can, if I let myself go, get to just as bad of a place as I fear that all the people around me are. But, but let's, let's pull back. So even without saying, hey, I've gotten to the place where I am as openly and wantonly like evil as those people are. Maybe I have the tendency and if left alone, I could under the right circumstances maybe get there, but like I haven't gotten there. Doesn't that count for anything? Well, surely and also take this narrative that I've been spinning. A little bit of alienation from God a little bit of fear and rage and insecurity, a little bit of that confirmed by the, the people around me, and how much does that do to me? You, you realize that very small things done to me, may f- they may feel like very small things from the people around me, and yet they may have in fact destroyed great pieces of my own shalom for decades. Right, one of my biggest fears as a parent is how all the ways that I'm gonna wound my kid. He's three and a half and I love him so much and yet I love my parents, right? Uh, my mom's here and, uh, every week. <laughs> and yet, right, like so many of us, all of us, the first way that we experienced the violence, the greed, the alienation, the destruction of shalom in profound ways that have shaped us for decades, the way that we have experienced that is from our parents. I'm not even talking about bad parents, which some of us have like actually abusive parents, and that, that's a whole other thing. Like that, that warrants a whole other sermon, but let's just set that to the side and, and just talk about the good parents. Even the good parents have like deeply and profoundly wounded me and us because of little bits of fear, because of little bits of control, because of little bits of anger, because of little bits of violence, because of little bits of abusive language in ways that we are like, oh my word, this has profoundly disturbed shalom and my ability to give love and receive love for decades. And as we start to realize that alienation paired with the mess, brought up close to the mess, has caused more mess in us, and then we realize that even little bits of mess that get out from us onto other people sometimes have profound and lasting consequences, then we finally realize, Oh my word, no, I, I don't want to be a Nazi. I don't want to write off Nazis as like not that bad, not, right? Like, but, but, but even way short of that, even as I, as I try to do good and be good, oh my word, I am wrapped up and have a self that is completely wrapped in evil action. I didn't think it was evil. I didn't mean it for evil. I didn't try to be evil. And yet, some of the things I've done have just destroyed shalom for my little boy for the next couple decades. Isn't this a sobering reality? We haven't even yet mentioned superstition or like the perversions of religion, which we believe, which further alienate us from God and cause us to contribute to the mess around us, 
because we're so convinced that our suffering is coming because God is furious and God is obsessive about us getting these couple of things right. And if we don't, here comes the lightning bolts. So then we're even more alienated from him and then we're even more controlling of the people around us. We're even more judgy of them. And then we tell them wrong stories about like their ability to relate to God and attach to God and, and spend time in the presence of God. And so then we're like, we're, we're just constantly in this, in this mess. We, ha- we haven't even mentioned like our obedience to like good religious norms like Bible things. And the fact that even our obedience to these good things can do nothing to change all of our flesh, all of our sin, all of our self that we've been talking about. Because even our, our best intentions of obeying good norms has never quite freed us. And we say, oh Lord, how helpless we are. And then we haven't even mentioned like the New Testament major character of like the invisible forces around us. Like the fact that the whole world seems to like thirstily and ceaselessly be careening towards destruction, chewing us up and causing more pain within us and then co-opting our wills and our desires and our aspirations for its own purposes in ways that we find ourselves, oh man, we are sinful people in a sinful land. And then, maybe some of this still feels a little insignificant, but we start to multiply this in our own souls and in the souls of the seven plus billion people around us, and suddenly we realize, oh, so these little things, these little desires, these little bits of idolatry and greed that the New Testament is so about, oh, maybe, I kind of get it. Verse 10. Right, so verse 9 was telling us to take off the old stealth, to strip it off with its evil practices. Verse 10 is, put on, clothe yourselves in the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now that him at the end, it confuses me because I don't want to call the, the new self a him. I want to call it an it. I don't know. It probably doesn't matter, but if I talk about a, a self like divorced from gender, I'd probably call it an it. Nasby here calls it a hymn, which is perfectly fine. I don't care, but that's what it's referring to here. It's, hey, strip yourself of the old self. The stipulation is, hey, there's something miraculously available to you having been baptized into Jesus. There is a new reality that supernaturally is available to you where you do not have to live as slaves and permanent complicit partners in this world of darkness all around you. You have been delivered from the domain of darkness, to use Colossians 1 language, and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son because even when you're in the midst of that darkness, God actually loved you enough to enter into that darkness on your behalf and redefine what was possible, what was real, what reality was, what nature was, what humanity is. So now clothe yourself in this new self that's being made entirely new in true knowledge according to the image of the one that created it. We're going to get to a lot of that next week. Let's close out with verse 11. Uh, This renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew 
There's no suspicion. There is no them. There is only us. There is no combativeness. There is no, I have to defend myself. There is no, I have to keep a firearm because I'm eventually going to shoot someone in the face. And like it's just, right, there, there is no them. But in Christ, there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, barbarian and super barbarian, slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. So in Christ, we have this new self that's freed from all of the above, not because of our own efforts, not because of our own goodness, not because of our own rule following, not because of our own intentions, but somehow just because of divine goodness and divine intervention, a new divine reality has been opened up to us. So, so, so what do we do, right? We've, we've kind of come to this like heavy place of, oh my word, we are really complicit, we're going to come back to like more gospel, helpful, hopeful truth about who we are. And yet this week, the thing that Paul has told us four different times is, hey, this doesn't have to be the case. Like wage war against this. Kill this. Put it away. Strip it off. You can do this in Christ. But the surprising one that actually might do the most good for your soul, for yourself, for your life this week is that third one that I told you was the secret to life in Jesus. Stop lying. Stop hiding. Stop pretending. Something has begun happening in you because of Jesus in your baptism. So, so live into it, exude it, strip the old you, but be honest about who you are. Be honest about who the old you is. Be honest about who the new you might be and begin, begin wearing the new you with pride and with openness. If we will stop our lying, stop our projections, stop the falseness that we've been living in in our relationships, right? Which, which all sounds like some psychobabble. And yet this is one of Paul's keys for us to start living in the new reality of the image of Jesus. This is not going to happen for you as a solo practitioner, as an individual divorced from the community around you. You've got to be able to have the courage and have the wherewithal to say, this is who I am. Old me, new me, bad me, good me, enslaved me, free me, here I am. And somehow in that, the grace of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the reality of Jesus can and will begin to work. We'll talk more next week. Let's pray. Lord, I want this in my own life. I, I don't want to be the self that's complicit in greed. Help me to stop lying about my own thirst for more. Help me to be real and to be honest and to be simple and humble about my anger about my passions, about my destructive tongue. God, I don't, I don't want to participate in the unmaking of the world. I don't want to contribute to the destruction of shalom. I don't want to hate. I want to love like you do. Would you help me to do that? Would you miraculously change myself? God, I feel such profound need for you to do something in me and for me and among us that is so far beyond my ability to do.
so far beyond any set of rules or patterns or behavior modifications to do, would you work in spiritual power to change me, to change us? Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.